We are in John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20. To me, uh, Luke's gospel and John's gospel present some really fascinating um, uh, presentations of the resurrection day. The first Easter, so to speak. Uh, They both give us these uh, sequence of events that sort of uh, give us this gradual swell of of, of this rumor of this guy, Jesus, who has risen from the dead to the final appearing of Jesus before his disciples. Both of the accounts, John 20, Luke 24, that you can kind of see this, this, uh, this, uh, all these events proceeding from this small little glimmer of this weird happenstance of finding an empty grave to finally Jesus appearing in the flesh, in bodily form, uh, in front of his disciples. And to me, that's what makes these passages so unique, because it just it grows and it grows and it builds. The events build on top of each other. Uh, you have to remember that the fallout, the aftermath of Calvary, of seeing Jesus crucified, was not immediately seen as triumphant. In, in the aftermath, the days that followed, uh, actually, the, the Jesus' disciples, uh, after seeing their Lord hanging and dying on a cross, they weren't shouting victory. They were actually feeling defeated and confused and bewildered. And they were questioning everything that they had just learned for the past three years after they had spent uh, all of those uh, countless um, uh, in events and, and occurrences and experiences with their Lord. Now he was gone. They didn't feel as if a victory had been won. They didn't feel as if anything triumphant had happened. And such is what we find, especially in John chapter 20, I feel like, is that we get a very, very good insight into the mindset of Jesus' disciples following Jesus' death. And how precisely and amazingly Jesus condescends to his disciples in their exact state of questioning and doubting and fearing. He meets them right there. He meets them in that moment. In their, I would say, their hour of gravest need. So this morning I want to look at three lessons uh, that present themselves to us in this resurrection account from John chapter 20. Uh, And the first lesson I want to draw your attention to comes at the very beginning. This is a lesson about Mary's unexpected witness. Mary's unexpected witness. Look at verse 1 of our text, John chapter 20. This is the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher. And seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. So Mary comes the first day of the week. The first day and and she comes early in the morning to visit the place where Jesus had been entombed. Luke tells us in Luke 24 that she is coming to finish the burial preparations for Jesus' body. Those preparations were left unfinished because of the day of preparation for the Passover, which you can read about in verse 42 of the previous chapter, John 19. She's coming and she's going to uh, continuing, uh, continue and finish the embalming process of Jesus' body. And she's not alone in this errand, even though our text doesn't outright mention it. She is accompanied by a few other women that were with her. But it's curious to me that that John specifically mentions Mary Magdalene. You know, much of what we know about Mary Magdalene is unsupported when it comes to her name popping up in Scripture. Some scholars have connected her with the prostitute who washes Jesus' feet back in Luke chapter 7. 
Now, there's no real uh, scriptural connection that you can make between uh, Mary Magdalene and that lady in that scene, other than just a sort of church tradition, so to speak. Others believe that Mary Magdalene received a, a sort of special revelation from Jesus. And might even say a special uh, dose of attention from Jesus. And some even resulting in the blasphemous notion that Mary Magdalene and Jesus had a child together. For some reason people believe that. Of course these notions are completely unscriptural and untrue and unfounded. And I would say dangerous. The only thing we know about Jesus, or excuse me, about Mary Magdalene comes from Luke chapter 8 verse 2 where it talks about Jesus healing Mary Magdalene from seven demons. She was possessed with seven evil spirits and Jesus frees her from that possession. So obviously she no doubt had this great sense of devotedness and loyalty to Jesus for uh, being liberated by the word of his power. And it's also very likely that she was present at the crucifixion. And now here we find her honoring her Lord. Honoring the one who had liberated her from darkness. But upon coming to this tomb she sees that the stone as it says in verse 1 is taken away. The stone has already been rolled away. Something has happened. Something uh, momentous has happened. She's not exactly sure what, but she knows that the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. And unsure of what that means, she runs. It says, look at verse 2. She runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, John, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. You see, she's not really sure What this means. She's not really sure what's happening in this moment. Such is why she runs. She runs back to the disciples to tell them that something is happening. She fears. She fears that the tomb has been robbed. She fears that the grave has been. There's been a thievery taken place of the grave. She assumes that someone has taken her Lord's body. The disciples were told in Luke chapter 24 verse 11. They sort of dismiss Mary's account and report as just nothing but an idle tale. Not something that's just nonsense. How, how in the world could that happen Mary? How, how in the, what are you talking about? This seems nothing but an idle tale. Some nonsense report. And so Peter and John they though have to see for themselves. Look at verse 3. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. So they sprint towards that place where Jesus was buried. They have to see for themselves if what Mary is talking about is really true. If, if what Mary had said is, is actually verifiable. And upon seeing the empty tomb, they too wonder what it means. They too are, are fascinated by the fact that this tomb is empty. You can jump down to verse 10 and it talks about how they went back to their own places, puzzled, bewildered. They went back to their own homes, just totally wondering at what this meant. At what it meant that the tomb was empty. And I want you to notice verse 11 because Mary stays behind. Look at verse 11. It says, but Mary stood without the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept... She stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. 
So Mary stays behind. Peter and John have ran off back to perhaps be with the other apostles and try and figure out, rack their brains on what has happened and see if they can figure it out. Mary stays behind. Perhaps seeking to gather some sort of insight from the surrounding areas to see if she could figure out what has happened. What has happened to her Lord? What has happened to the one who has liberated her from uh, demon possession? She's overcome with grief. She's overcome with sadness. Despair at the fact that the tomb is empty. They have taken away her Lord's body. How disrespectful. How dishonoring. She peers. Look at verse 12. She peers into the empty tomb. And it says, she sees two angels in white sitting. The one at the head and the other at the feet. Where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, because they have taken away my Lord. And I know not where they have laid him. Now we are not told whether or not Mary was startled. By all of a sudden looking into the empty tomb and seeing two angels appearing before her. Actually, if you read the text again, she, it just rather appears she's calmly conversing with these two figures that are sitting there. Perhaps she didn't know they are angels, but whatever the case, she repeats, she repeats again what is causing her grief. That her Lord is MIA, missing in action. He's not here. They've taken away my Lord's body. And where have they taken him? And then suddenly she turns. Look at verse 14. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. She sees another figure that has popped up at the scene. That has suddenly appeared right in front of her. And yet she doesn't know that it's Jesus. Much like in Luke 24, if you remember, when the two disciples were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus suddenly appears in their midst. And yet they didn't know that it was Jesus. The same thing is happening to Mary Magdalene here, I think. That her eyes were holden. Perhaps it was the darkness of the early morning hours. But whatever be the case, she supposes this figure to be the gardener. Look at verse 15. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me, where hast thou laid him? And I will take him away. She supposes that this figure in front of her is the gardener, the one who just tended to the land that was surrounding the sepulcher. And in her dismay, she accuses this figure. Where have you taken him? Surely you know. Surely you are aware of what's going on. Surely you know perhaps where they have taken my Lord's body. And then comes this incredible moment. Because the figure suddenly speaks out to her. And speaks directly to her. And speaks her name. Look at verse 16. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. And that's all that was necessary. In that instance, all of a sudden, the lights sort of went off in her mind. And she recognized, she knew upon hearing her name, she knows that this figure is the Lord Jesus, her master, her teacher, the one who had rescued her from demon possession. She is overcome with just an incredible flood of emotions of faith and reverence. And look at it again. She turned herself, verse 16, and saith unto him, Rabbani, which is to say, Master. She's falling at Jesus' feet, worshiping this Lord, her Savior. 
She knows all it took was Jesus pronouncing her name. And Jesus saith unto her, verse 17, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren, to the apostles, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. See, she had come early that morning to, uh, to properly embalm her dead teacher. To properly finish the burial process. And yet she was met by something altogether different. <laughs> a living savior. A, a, a savior who was still her teacher in bodily form. Raised from the dead. One commentator puts it this way. Instead of a dead body she, hope, she had hoped to recover. She found herself face to face with her living Lord. <laughs> the living Lord of all. Appears right in front of Mary Magdalene. An unassuming woman who had come to just honor her Lord and liberator. It's remarkable to me that the very first appearance of the risen Christ comes to none other than this woman, Mary Magdalene. It's remarkable. It's an unexpected event. I'll tell you, many today, many preachers today will press unnecessarily into this point though. They will look at Jesus' charge of what he tells Mary to do. Or how he tells Mary to go back to the apostles and tell them about um, his resurrection. And they will base entirely on this text that, that, there is a lot, that is allowable for women to be preachers and pastors. Of course we know from other uh, accounts of scripture that it is not true. And I would hasten to say that this moment, this moment is not a statement about who belongs in the pastorate. Who belongs behind the pulpit proclaiming the word of God. Rather, I would say this, that it's, it is hinting at, again, the mysterious scandal of the resurrection. It's hinting at, again, that Jesus' penchant and preference is to give good news to the least expecting people. We know from... Many historical accounts that a, a, a woman's testimony, at least in this day, was not highly regarded. In fact, it was seldom regarded at all. In a court of law or in a public assembly or what have you, their, their accounts of an event held really to little no consideration. Of course, we already mentioned that. The disciples dismiss almost out of turn Mary and the other women's reports from Luke 24.11. But I, would, I, I like to think of it this way. That this preference for this sort of scandalous uh, appearance before this unexpected person, this unexpected witness, is sort of like at the very beginning. Jesus' incarnation. Remember who he comes to first? Shepherds. Dirty, filthy, uh, unworthy shepherds are given the very first message of the good news that the Savior has come to release mankind from their sins, to preach goodwill and peace to all men. Who does that message come to? Filthy, rotten shepherds. And in a similar way, the very first witness to the resurrected Lord is this unassuming woman. Who is very swiftly given the charge. Go and tell. Just like the shepherds. Go and tell. Go and see. 
Here, Jesus charges Mary. She says to, uh, he says to go tell my brethren. And it says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. An unexpected witness of resurrection power. But let me look at the next lesson of the text because we had a lesson about Mary's unexpected witness. But I also want to notice here. A lesson about the apostles' unwarranted worry. Look back at verse 3 of our text again. Back at verse 3 where it says, Peter, therefore, went forth, and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. They hear this good news, and they have to, they have to make sure... That what Mary is talking about is true. That that the grave is empty. So they run. And I love how John says that that the other disciple, he's talking about himself, did outrun Peter. He's mentioning the fact, included in all of scripture, that he was faster than the apostle Peter. Whatever that detail amounts to you, I don't know. (laughs) Perhaps he was fitter. Perhaps it's just indicating that he was younger. But regardless, John makes sure to mention that he outran Peter. It says, John comes to the tomb first, but he stood outside. Look at verse, uh, excuse me, verse 5. It says, and he stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. He doesn't go in. He doesn't go inside the tomb. He just stoops down, looks inside, and sees that Mary's report is true. It's empty. The tomb is vacant. Peter, though, verse 6, he goes and he runs straight into the sepulcher. Look at verse 6. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, John, again referencing himself, which came first to the sepulcher and he saw and believed. This passage is really curious to me. Because John here mentions about himself that he saw and believed. But what did he believe? Because they come in and they see uh, that all of this clothes is, is, is not in a, in a manner, in a, in a place that would suggest that some sort of hostile robbery of the grave has taken place. Peter looks around and sees, as it says, that, the, that the, he sees the napkin. And it says that they are wrapped together in a place by itself. The grave clothes are folded They're not uh, furiously strewn about or they're not even uh, taken away along with the body uh, uh, like grave robbers would likely do. Instead, they're folded neatly in place and Jesus' body alone is taken. To me, uh, I don't... I think it's very unlikely at this point that that even the sight of this empty grave inspired the apostles' faith. In the resurrection. Now I want to I show you that. Because the phrasing of he saw and believed. I think lends itself for us to assume. That that is exactly what's happening. But again I don't think that's necessarily the case. Actually of course. If you, were, if you go to Luke 24. And look at verse 12. It talks about how Peter. When he leaves from this very scene. It says that he goes away marveling. Not believing, marveling, wondering, how in the world could this happen? What is going on? It appears as if a grave robbery has happened, but all the evidence at the scene suggests that's not what happened. 
This is confusing. This is bewildering. This is a marvel. But also, too, look at verse 19 of our text in John 20. Which further, for me at least, confirms the fact that the resurrection, even though Jesus has constantly reiterated the fact that he was going to die, and yes, he's also going to rise again after three days, for whatever reason, there was this dissonance between that message and this moment. Because look at the disciples. It says, look at verse 19, Then the same day at evening, this is the same day, the same day that Mary has come and given this witness, the same day that the, that the disciples on the road to Emmaus have been visited by this risen Lord, the same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. The disciples are hiding. Disciples are hiding out, assembled together in a room with the doors shut, the doors locked, the doors are barred. Why? Because they're fearing the Jews. Locked doors is not the response that I would imagine the disciples to have if they believed and understood that the resurrection meant victory. That the resurrection meant a triumph over death, that a triumph over sin. Do you think they would have locked doors? No. I think their doors are locked because they suddenly realize they are coming to grips with the fact that the grave has been robbed and they are likely the ones that are going to have the blame for that. They are going to be charged with robbing the grave. They would get blamed for this missing criminal's body. They're going to be blamed for it. And now their heads are going to be on the chopping block, so to speak, because they are going to be labeled tomb raiders. So they're hiding out. They're camping out in this upper room. And therefore, that's, that's why I believe strongly that when it says he saw and believed, it's more indicating that he saw and he believed Mary's report that the grave is empty. Again, this is before Mary has seen the risen Lord, that Peter and John believe, yes, this woman's report is true. Jesus' body was gone. And the subsequent hours were spent then marveling, what could this mean? What could it possibly mean that Jesus' body is gone? Who took it? We didn't take it. We know that, even though we're going to get blamed for it. So what does it mean that his body is gone? Because look at verse 9. It says, He saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. They knew it not. They forgot the scriptures which prophesied and promised. They forgot all of the accounts of their Lord and teacher confirming for them that yes, I'm going to die, but I'm also going to rise again after three days. We've looked at a couple of those in our series through the Gospel of Mark. Every time Jesus predicts his death, there is also a prediction of his resurrection. And yet here, they forgot that. They're not really believing in the resurrection like we are celebrating today. What they are is they're believing this unexpected report of their missing Lord. They didn't remember the scriptures. 
They still did not believe. They're hiding behind locked doors out of fear and trepidation and out of worry. Their plans, their dreams, their intentions for being this teacher's disciples were destroyed. Why? Because he hung on a cross as a public criminal. Between two uh, violent criminals, their Lord and teacher, the one that they had assumed was the Messiah, was hanging there in public disgrace. When Jesus died, so did their expectations. Shattered. Ruined. They felt defeated. They felt totally lost. They were stuck on the fact that their supposed Messiah, the one who were supposed to live up to all their messianic assumptions, he is not at all doing that. He is dead. Dead via the cruelty of a cross with no kingdom, no glory, no power to show for it. Just death. Just defeat. Or so it seemed at least. So it seemed to them in this moment. Because I love the fact that they are here in this room trying, no doubt, to figure out what has happened. Perhaps they're trying to figure out in silence. I don't imagine that there's much talking going on in this room. It's silent. Mary has come in and told them that she has seen the risen Lord. And look at what happens. Look at verse 19. Again. Then the same day at evening... Being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. The same day, Jesus comes through that door and he speaks an incredible message of peace to them and he readies them for their new errand. Look at verse 20. It says, And when he had said so, He showed unto them his hands and his side. And then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you. As my father has sent me, even so send I you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Jesus here. Gives them the new mission. That these fearful apostles are going to be the same faithful witnesses to the resurrection that is just about to uh, happen. If you go to the book of Acts. From the very sermon that Pastor Nathan read from the apostle Peter. He is testifying to the fact that he has seen the risen Lord. And it all comes from this moment. That's one of the things that I love about Acts. If you go to the book of Acts and you juxtapose the apostles that you read about there and how defiant and how boisterous and how victorious and triumphant they are in all of their sermons. By the way, all of their sermons uh, almost always mention the fact uh, that the resurrection is true. And then you juxtapose that with these apostles who are sitting in fear, cowering out of fear of the Jews. It almost doesn't feel like it's the same men. (laughs) Here, they're cowering in defeat. And then a few days and weeks later, they are having the spirit poured out on them. And they are speaking in tongues, going around, spreading the good news of the resurrection. Wow. 
Why? Because they saw in the flesh their risen Lord. Who came to them and said, here's my hands and here's my side. He gives them this incredible message, a sermon. A sermon on his own body. That he had paved the way for hope and peace and pardon for the whole entire world. But I want you to notice something that has always stuck out to me in this scene. Because again, the doors were shut. The doors are locked. The doors are barred. They are hiding in this upper room. And yet Jesus miraculously, marvelously transports himself through the walls. Through the doors. Because the doors are locked. And then it says he is suddenly in the middle of them. He's suddenly in the middle of the room. And yet he shows them his body. His flesh. Flesh that was disfigured from the the torments he had just suffered a couple days earlier on the cross. Jesus is in his resurrected and glorified state. But notice he is still a person. Still a living person. The body that walked out of that grave is the same body that was put in the grave. It's the same body that was birthed in a manger a few decades before. The same exact body rose out of that grave. Jesus inhabits that same body post-rising as before. Scars and all. All the scars that he suffered on the cross, they are still there on his body. Again, a sermon to us. Of the atonement that he had made. Of the sacrifice that he had suffered. Of the price that he paid for you and for me. F.F. Bruce, the commentator, he says this. It was in bodily form that he was there. The nail-pierced hands and the wounded side identified him unmistakably as the crucified one. Identified this Jesus Yes, in all of his glory as he is in his resurrected body, but in the same body that hung in that tree. And he's before his apostles. And it's the sight of that resurrected body, again, that inspires them, that encourages them, that gives them the courage, the confidence, and the the fortitude to go out and preach the good news despite all the opposition they would face. Despite all of the death that would come their way. Think about that. What would make the apostles be willing to die? A message about a a crucified Lord who stayed in the grave? No, it's the sight of the fact that their Lord has visited them in the flesh. After being dead, he rose again from the dead. Such is why... The apostles, as you read about in Acts, again, go read about all of the things that they suffered. Why? Because they knew it was true. They saw with their own eyes that this is true. We saw the Lord resurrected in the flesh. He was there with us. We saw and we touched and we felt. Such is why they were so confident So courageous in their stand for the truth. And as such is too, what makes 
the most precious belief that we have as a church. Which is the fact that the basis of our faith is a living hope, but more specifically, it's a living person. A living person, not just an ethereal force or a nebulous entity with something that's unidentifiable, that's, not, that's impersonal. No, you have a living person who wants to know you and who knows you by name. Just as he spoke to Mary and just as he spoke to these disciples, he can speak to you as well. He is your personal Lord who knows you. Who is living and ruling and reigning right now. Alexander McLaren, he says this, The object of the Christian's faith is not a proposition, it is not a dogma, nor a truth, but a person. And the act of faith is not an acceptance of just a given fact, a resurrection or any other as true, but it is a reaching out of the whole nature to him and resting upon him, resting upon a person. That's what your faith rests on. Not just this idea is true, not that just this dogmatic belief is verifiably true. It's the fact that there's a person who rose from the dead, who triumphed and conquered the grave. And he is living and ruling and reigning forevermore right now. And his name is Jesus. I've read this passage before, but I love it so much. It comes from a lecturer whose name is Richard Trench. And he says this. The prerogative of our Christian faith, the secret of its strength, is that all which it has and all which it offers is laid up in a living person. This is what has made it strong, while so much else has proved weak, that it has Christ for a middle point, that it has not a circumference without a center, that it has not merely a deliverance, but a deliverer. And not a redemption only, but a redeemer as well. For oh, how vast is the difference between submitting ourselves to a complex of rules and casting ourselves upon a living and beating heart. Between accepting a system and cleaving to a person. This morning, this is what we have. We have a living, beating heart who is still living and beating for you and I at this moment. The focal point of all of our doctrine and devotion and ministering and preaching and all the things that we do is a person. A person who assumed a body that was just like ours in order that he might die and rise again and remake our bodies just like his. This is what he has done for us. This is the good news of the gospel of the resurrected Lord. The Lord who is risen in body and in the flesh. And here the apostles believe. Their worry was unwarranted because their Lord was a risen Lord. But it leads me to the last lesson. Lastly, a lesson about Thomas's unfettered welcome. Because look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. We are not sure what was going on in Thomas's life that he was not with the other apostles. If you read all of the accounts about Thomas throughout the Gospels, he is most notoriously, or at least the most vocal about his pessimism. Such is why we commonly refer to him as Doubting Thomas. He receives a lot of our disdain for being the doubter. 
He wasn't there. Perhaps he was grieving. Perhaps he is just one of those individuals that needed to be alone in his grief. Whatever the case, we are told that he is defiant in his disbelief. And perhaps that's why we remember him so well as the doubter. Because look at verse 25. The other disciples who, has, who have just seen their Lord, they say, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. His doom and gloom sort of pessimism and defeatism leaves him to make this really excessive request. I am not going to believe anything unless I can put my hands in the prints of the nails of his, in his hands. And in his side, I want to touch this risen Lord's body. Unless I can do that, I'm not going to believe anything that you say to me. <laughs> Remarkably, a week later, he is granted this incredible request. Look at verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believe. Jesus reappears in the upper room with the disciples and he singles out Thomas and he remarkably acquiesces to this excessive request from Thomas. You want to touch me? Here, touch my hands. Touch my side. See that it is really me. See that it is your Lord risen in the flesh. You see, in reality, Thomas is just like the other apostles. Who didn't believe until they saw the risen Lord. Until they saw his flesh. Thomas was no doubt more vocal about it. But did you notice, or look at verse 28. Because yes, Thomas was more vocal about his doubt, but he also becomes uh, a confessor of the faith. Look at verse 28. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. From feeling defeated in his doubt, he becomes victorious in this confession of newfound faith and conviction as he stares directly into the eyes of his risen Savior. And puts his hands on his flesh. And then Jesus utters those blessed words. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Remember, this is a rebuke to Thomas, but it's also a rebuke to all the other apostles too. Who did not believe until they had seen who did not believe until they had touched the Lord's body. They delayed all their belief until they had seen the risen Lord. And these words were meaningful to them. Because as they were going to go out. And make disciples of all nations. As we will soon read about in the great commission. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all that stuff. As we read about their incredible galvanizing faith in the book of Acts. They're fulfilling this very commission. Inciting other people to believe without having seen the risen Lord. 
such as what we're doing here this morning. Inviting other people to believe without having seen the risen Lord. This is what happens every time the scriptures are opened. This is what makes this scene to me all the more powerful. Is that every time we open the gospel, we are in a sense repeating this scene. Where Jesus is coming to undeserving, uh, unfaithful disciples and showing us his wounds. Showing us his scars. Showing us his disfigured body. So that we might believe in the deliverance that comes from those scars. From those wounds. From his broken riddled flesh. Every time the gospel is preached. We are replicating a moment where the faithless ones are greeted by their faithful resurrected Lord. Who comes to them that they might believe Believe all the more in his sufficient atonement for us. Believe in what he did. Believe in his triumph over sin, death, hell. Believe that he has liberated them once and for all from the threat of condemnation. Believe once and for all that he has accomplished the righteousness that they need from the law. See, this is the the true, incredible power of the resurrection that happened on this day and extends all the way even to this day, 2,000 odd years later, that the promise is still the same, that Jesus is still a person that is disfigured by scars that were put there on behalf of our sin. It's a reminder to us. That our resurrected Lord has conquered sin. He has canceled the certificate of debt of sin that was against us. And he has nailed it to the cross. It talks about in Colossians. He has canceled all of that in his own death on the cross for us. The resurrection power of Jesus is the persistent promise that is found in his wounds. I think it was one of my pastors who said a long time ago that the only wounds that are going to appear in heaven are the wounds of our risen Savior. They're going to be there forever as a reminder of what he did for us. As a reminder that this body that was raised is the body that was hung on the tree. A body that was born in a manger for you and for me. To uh, show forth the glory of his grace. And the extension of his forgiveness. It's found in this body. This body that walked out of the grave. This body that, that declared that he will lay down his life for his friends, but also he will raise up his own body after three days. The promise is fulfilled. Jesus is risen. And we can believe and shout for all glory. Jesus is alive. Let us pray.